The Plant Powered Show Pop-Up Podcast is brought to you by Latitude Apart Hotel and the City of Cape Town. Welcome back to the Plant Powered Show Pop-Up Podcast, the ultimate destination for those seeking advice on plant-based products and hoping to reduce their environmental footprint while still enjoying a vibrant and fulfilling life. My name is Sean Lewitz and Gregory Henderson, also known as the Forage Chef, is here. Welcome to the Pop-Up Podcast Studio. Greg. Sean, thanks for having me today. Only a pleasure. Greg or Gregory? Greg, Gregory when I'm in trouble. Okay, so we'll see how far how this goes then. <laughs> I might have to call you Gregory a little bit later. Have you always foraged for food, Greg? So, yeah, I'm a young boy. I grew up in the Eastern Cape. Okay. And, you know, that was part of our lifestyle, that living down there. We come from a different generation. We played outdoors a lot. Uh, when we bunked school, we headed in the flays to get away from school. And through that as well, we met some very interesting characters. And one in particular was Ben Decker, who was a, a traveler around the coast of the Eastern Cape. And he taught us a lot about the edible nuts and uh, the wild mushrooms that grew there and what was edible and what wasn't edible, and but also what was psychedelic too. Ah. Um, so it was part of that knowledge. Also, the local people in the community that we used to work with in our houses and all of that as well, they gave us a lot of knowledge based on the wild tree fruits that were growing there. For instance, Alpilium caffrum, which is a sour plum. And I had my first experience with that plant when I was skateboarding down a hill and I hit one of the pips and I looked up and saw the tree. Then we started eating those fruits and we decided they're actually very delicious. And, you know, us as kids, we always used to eat a lot of the stuff that was growing around. And if we didn't know, we used to ask the questions. So I always believe that some of the best knowledge that always lies within the foods around us is from those local communities that are living in the region. Um, the small town where I come from, King Williamstown, 65% of the indigenous knowledge system is still preserved within that region. And it's one of the few places within Southern Africa where that uh, preservation of indigenous knowledge is so high, somewhere down to 25% of that IKS. Wow. So it was a very important place to live. And um, obviously with uh, a lot of the, the, the government officials obviously living within the region as well, from Bishu, my next door neighbor was um, Steve Twete, and he's the, we grew up with his daughter, Yonda Twete. So we had a good cultural mix within our communities, but also within our friendship circles which created diversity in the foods that we used to eat. I must say, I'm, I'm impressed that you were prepared to taste things. I'm very afraid to eat things that I haven't seen before and a little unfamiliar. And, uh, so that, that for me, I've got to say, I would probably go along with a certified facilitator, which I know you are, yes. right? You're a, you're a foraging and indigenous food specialist. Yes. So now, why is foraging food, foraging for food, a good idea? And should more of us be doing something like that? So, you know, it's a very ancient technique, and that's something that we've lost. You know, when the settlers came onto our shores in the late 1700s, you know, they brought a lot of crops that weren't indigenous to South Africa, weren't native to the country, but, you know, became very invasive. And what they started doing for the ecosystem started actually pulling out the nutrients within the food systems that we kind of used to have to versus what we have at the moment now. You know, with wild foods, they grow in natural formed ecosystems. They're very pure foods as well, and they're very nutritional. So our consumption on those foods is a lot less than obviously from the stuff we're buying from the shops. Just to give you a good example of an introduced crop, you take a tomato, for example. A tomato you grow within your own garden versus a tomato you grow from a shop, you can taste those differences. And this is how wild food also helps as well. But, you know, like any plant, it's about the pheno selection of that plant. So if it's growing within a great environment that gets all the nutrients, the fruits are a lot sweeter. But if it's growing in a place where it's struggling with that environment, the fruits aren't as sweet as, as, as they're supposed to be. So it's also about your selection as well. And by us also doing the pheno selections on those plants to regenerate and repropagate species that have that delicious fruit, that have that high uh, the nutritional content, but also the high sugar profile that we need as well from it. 
astounding. This, there really is so much, I don't know, you've just blown my mind. I probably have a thousand more questions and we only have a limited time. What have you foraged most recently? How often do you go out and forage? So I'm um, very special in the sense that I look at both rainfall regions. South Africa, we're really blessed. We've got nine biomes and nine biomes have nine different food systems, which have nine different cultures. We have a winter and a summer rainfall region. The Cape is obviously a winter rainfall region. Further up north is a summer rainfall region. So I've just come back from the Kruger National Park because I was busy doing an event there with Conservation International Tourism Exchange, where part of that we were talking about sustainable produce, but also produce that grows around within that region that's sustainable to pets. So like mopani worms, uh, monkey oranges, marula nuts, and those things as well, we also paired with gamey, believe it or not. And even though this is a plant show, we've just got to say that if it grows together, it goes together. Wow. Yeah. And so we're trying to inspire a more nutritional food system, but what's also in the reserves, there's a lot of biomass that lands up on the floor. For instance, you take a marula tree, it produces between 700 to 900 cages of fruit 25 to 35% of that fruit is only consumed by the flora. Fauna, I mean. So the rest has fallen onto the floor and becomes biomass. So the locals are now harvesting that fruit. They obviously taking the skins, fermenting it, making the marula beer with a the fruit. They're making jams and jellies with it. And then from the nut, they're cracking the nut and taking those with very, very delicious and very, very creamy. So these are the things we should be having within our supermarkets, but also the products that they're manufacturing, just to create that social economic value chain that our communities benefit from. One thing we realize, obviously, in the Kruger National Park and all communities around South Africa, people get into crime and poaching because they are hungry. Now we can show them different avenue centers, circular economies that can benefit those communities so that they can basically get more revenue and income to improve the social value of those communities, but also provide them with a more nutritional food system. That's incredible, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wanted to bring up just one of the accolades. I know you've got over two decades of working in uh, fast-paced, you know, high-profile kitchens and, and really striving for really good quality. And among the accolades that you've collected during your career is the global winner of the most sustainable dining experience at the Lux Awards, which was in 2018. What goes into achieving an award of that nature? So the special thing and the story about that um, award is I actually wrote a book about it. It's called The Overberg Tapestry. And within this book as well, it tells about the story, how we work with the young community. We employed locally, we employed from within, so we grew our staff. But they came with very, very special stories of the indigenous culture, especially from that region. And obviously the Amakwa people that used to live with the, the Khoikhoi. And the nice thing about that and why we got that accolade as well, because they became the curators of the story, but we had almost a carbon neutral footprint on how we used to do our food because we had whole product use. So everything we did, we did nose to tell, we did complete from the felt to the plate and everything of the product we used completely as well. But at the end of the day, we also curated a story that dated back thousands of years and translated it back into the rest and to the products that we used. And that's how we got our, uh, our accolades. We were very fortunate for them to come and dine in our restaurant, to come and experience it as well. And the, the staff who curated that story are the real winners of this as well, because they're the ones that taught us about all these things that I didn't know, because it's not part of my heritage. Mm. Uh, and to give an example, one is the, the sour fig, how the kids used to go and harvest that and then take the sap out of that and then add a bit of water and whip it up like a meringue. They used to call it a polyvitskun. So that's something that we had to feature on the menu, um, even in terms of the smudging experience when the guests came into the restaurant, the, the bundles of uh, wild sage that used to grow there, they taught us how to make the tray, where they took the palomon shell, took acacia branches, interlinked them together, and that became the tray for the smudging, which created that central experience, because part of their cultures as well as warding off evil um, omens and all of that and giving a good space, a neutral space, but it was a start to the central experience. So through that as well, all became sustainable processes, how we started curating those menus, but also our supply chain. 
So our network of purchasing was only 50 kilometers away from the restaurant. And what that does is shortens your supply chain as well. So your carbon footprint becomes a lot less as well. We had great relationship with the surrounding farmers. Our milk we used to get from a little farm called Roy Hevel. We used to make our own cheese. We used to make our own yogurt. We used to pasteurize our own milk. So everything that everybody came into that restaurant was a locally manufactured product. Um, even to the meat. And where we're coming from as well, there's a special place called the Ruins Valley. And the Ruins Valley is where everything gets grazed and all of that, but it gives a more sustainable approach to obviously how we are farming, um, in terms of impact on livestock farming. Because, you know, that's reliant on C3 grasses, which has basically got three carbon atoms in it, as opposed to C4 grasses, which has got four carbon atoms, which are carbon sesquiters. So farmers and them are doing it wrong. And it's, if we start working with the land a lot better, you know, we can start regenerating things. And that's where we started promoting indigenous foods because part of indigenous foods is it creates a regenerative environment, a regenerative ecosystem. The minute we start putting non-native crops into that, it pulls all the nutrients out the soil. So we can inspire that food system through the restaurant and through that supply chain as well, but also linking the markets to them to propagate that more as opposed to westernized crops we start creating a more regenerative environment. Mm. And the economy benefits. Absolutely, through, through well. the social. So. so this is a story about the community where, where I'm talking about Botrafia. It's one of the, the places where it's actually a recruitment ground for the 28 gangs. It's the recruitment places for Palawan poachers. And the, one of our success stories is about 80% of the staff that walked through our doors had a sense of hope. And when they left us, they started buying houses, buying cars, they had families, started living a lot better lives as well, but started embracing their heritage and their culture better. And they kept on curating that story going forward. So it was a great impact from what the restaurant did to them, what they learned within the restaurant and that skill set. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm tearing up listening to you say that. I've heard terms like wild food and yes. natural foods a lot recently. Yes. Um, is that just a term to differentiate them from processed foods? Was there something more to that? So I touched base on this a little bit earlier. You know, wild foods come from a natural formed ecosystem. We don't have to add anything. And I always say you look at a plant as quantum. What comes from the top of the canopy, the mid canopy, from the, uh, the trunk down to the ground and underneath that. And once you've got a good quantum environment as well, it becomes more regenerative. We should not be planting things in. We should be taking seeds and letting them to fall, to sprout regenerating that ecosystem. That's how nature was. Before we didn't have tractors, we didn't have monoculture environments, we didn't have non-native species growing there. Everyone was growing in a natural form ecosystem which is established biodiversity. And that's the biggest thing for me as well. We only pick what we need. We only take 25% of what we need, but we also everything that we take and every person that I've worked with in terms of indigenous cultures and First Nation people, whatever we take, we put back. Mm -hmm. If it's not there, we need to grow it first and make sure it's regenerated first before we can take it. And that's the story about the biggest hunger. And you always hear about the sand talking about the biggest hunger. This is what they're talking about. They travel for miles and miles and miles and there's no food, they don't pick it, but they will add something back into that ecosystem. So when they come back, there's something that's available for it. And these are the lessons we have forgot. Yeah, 100% yeah. true. Greg, before I let you go, Examples of things that are easily accessible and easy to make that are relatively close to us, that are safe enough for us to forage, maybe that are growing in our own gardens? Yes. So that's the most thing is to be inspired by nature to repropagate within your garden. So there's a lot of things when we talk about like the, the, the floral stuff, like the buchu is that everybody wants to go and pick within the mountains. And obviously Cape, Cape area is very protected. And 
it's about going into nature, touching and smelling and getting inspired so that you bring it back into your own garden. This time of the year, we've got the winter, so all our mushrooms are popping up. So the mushrooms are obviously popping up because of invasive tree species that we're brought in with the settlers as well. So that's a selection of pine rings, porcinis, um, chicken of the woods were like, just recently just come out in the middle of autumn and the wood bluets. So all of those things that are available for you. You've also got the things like the searings, which is your wood sorrel, which you can pet. But these foods as well, without, they contain high in oxalic acids. So we only have to consume a little bit amount of them. There's also products at the moment. 15 years ago, it was fine to forage in the wild or within urban spaces. But currently with the pollution that we have at the moment, you've got things called bioaccumulators who are essentially bioregenerators. So, you know, products like June spinach and sutzlai and all of those things are actually bioaccumulators. And we look at them and you look at the papillas, it's little gels on top of them as well. If you take a jeweler's loop and look into them and they're clear, that's fine. But if they are milky and milky and almost brown, they're basically pulling up toxins as well. So it's good to forage those as well, but you've got to be very mindful of those areas that you actually go and forage them from. So you've got to look for pure, clean ecosystems to forage that from. Okay, so good point as well then. Forage with someone who knows what they're doing. Don't just go out there and pillage. Absolutely. And okay. you know, that's a sustainable thing. And the, the biggest trick is always to attack invasive species first. You got, we've got to let the indigenous stuff thrive. But therefore, by the way that we pick things with in terms of indigenous food, create better growth for that. Make it more diverse, gives you more yield. And a good example is a little baboon that's in the, the Southern Cape. It's called the Chakma baboon. And that baboon is a natural forager as well. And the way that they pick those plants, they pick just above the internatal sites. So when they pick the one top internatal sites, two new shoots come. Mm. Then they pick another two, four new shoots comes. So every time that they're building a more resilient food system as opposed to snapping off branches and walking away. So foragers can actually create a great, great, great impact to their ecosystem by regenerating and making it more abundant by picking things correctly. If they do it correctly, yeah. Very good point yeah. there. Uh, lastly, does my body, is my body going to be receptive to indigenous or wild plants immediately? Or is there a bit of an accumulation sort of period? How will it affect me if I were to eat something that I'm not used to eating? So it's all about being mindful of what you are eating. For instance, like I said before, a lot of the wild foods we have around us, like the, the copperum compressum, which is your cape sumac berry, is high in tannins. Um, your oxalis, your wood sorrels, um, that's also high in oxalic acids. So everything is about less is more. And the thing with our consumption at the moment, we are eating more food than we're supposed to be eating because our bodies aren't getting the nutritional content that they're supposed to get. The nice thing with wild foods is that it's highly nutritional food, so we don't have to eat as much in order to get the intake we require. Therefore, we have less biomass to deal with. Um, so it's also to be mindful of the ingredients you're cooking, eating, what you're getting out of them as well, and also what do they contain. And from that as well, you will start getting a more nutritional system, and it keeps you very, very healthy as well. I'll take for an example, you look at the communities up within the Eastern Cape at the moment, there's a lot of them are suffering from diabetes, swollen ankles, overweight, but then you go to the people in Lesotho. And the reason because it is because of the crop that they eat. So a majority of their diet is based on maize. And maize doesn't come from South Africa, it was, it was put into obviously from South America, but the guys in Lesotho are eating sorghum, it's an indigenous grain. So it's something that's accustomed to their body and they're eating in the right sense. So they eat a lot from the mountains and from that as well, it gives us a good lesson to learn about their own health within their communities and how we can better fit. Yeah, and, and this is what the show is really about, conscious living and being mindful of what you're putting in and what you're taking out. Absolutely. You, we could speak for hours. Gregory Henderson, but I use that because it's your full name and not because you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, the Forage Chef, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge. We'll be sure to include some of the things in the show notes. Uh, the Plant Powered Show brings together top local and international chefs, celebrity cooks, mixologists, health and wellness experts, as well as plant-based food 
food, drink, and conscious living products and brands. Subscribe to the Plant Powered Show pop-up podcast, and you can join me each week as we delve a little bit deeper into the plant-based living. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Plant Powered Show for the latest updates, mouth-watering recipes, and engaging content. The Plant Powered Show pop-up podcast is brought to you by Latitude Apart Hotel and the City of Cape Town. 